Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about William Wallace, the famous Scottish knight. I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, he fought against the English King Edward I and Edward Longshanks uh, towards the end of the 13th century. Now, again, doubtless you've heard of this bloke. Uh, very, very, very famous indeed. Uh, you might already know, or you might already think you know a fair bit about him due to uh, two very famous and, of course, highly accurate historical documentaries. I'm, of course, talking about the Age of Empires II uh, tutorial campaign as well as the 1995 documentary epic Braveheart, which uh, gained a lot of attention, that film, for its um, approach to historical accuracy. Whether that attention was positive or not, well, we can maybe have a chat about that later. But for now, I'm pretty sure that people have, you know, at least heard of William Wallace. Uh, But what, but what was his actual story? You probably got an idea of him as this, you know, hairy wilderness-based guerrilla freedom fighters, freedom fighter from the Scottish Highlands. But was that actually, well, no, it wasn't actually the case. No, I can tell you, tell you right now, it wasn't actually the case. Um, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of very interesting things about this bloke that, uh, you know, have sort of been absorbed into the legend around him, as well as, you know, containing some pretty significant grains of truth. Um, but why was he fighting in the first place? What happened for Scotland to end up at war with England in the beginning? And, uh, you know, again, what was the actual story of this bloke today? We're going to answer all those questions and more, uh, you know, about talk about Scotland's position in the late Middle Ages, what the ultimate result of the fight with uh, the fight with England was this time around, all, the, all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, we're going to have a good time doing it as well because the, uh, the, the story of William Wallace has got, it's got all sorts of good stuff. I'll tell you what, it's got betrayals, it's got political scandals, of course, blood and guts and horrible murder, all the, all the half-ass history content you crave. So let's get to it. Let's get to it and uh, have a chat about this bloke, Sir William Wallace, to give him his proper title. Sir William Wallace, the Guardian of Scotland, and uh, learn all about what he got up to. So we're going all the way back, all the way back. Well, actually, not a 100% sure when we're going back to here. Where We don't know too much about Wallace's childhood, to be honest. We don't even know what his parents' names were. Uh, his dad might have been named Alan, but uh, even then we're not completely sure. Uh, in fact, we don't know much about this bloke's personal life at all, even as an adult. Uh, apparently he got married at one point, but we don't know the name, uh, name of his wife. And if they had kids together, we don't know about them either. So he's a figure shrouded in mystery, uh, at least when it comes to his personal life. Although politically and militarily, we've got a much clearer picture of it all. Anyway... Our best guess is that uh, William Wallace was born uh, in or around 1270 during the reign of the Scottish King Alexander III. Now, Alexander, he died in 1286 when William was a teenager, and this caused a bit of a problem for the Kingdom of Scotland, put it mildly. Uh, Up until this point, Scotland had been mostly, more or less, just an independent kingdom uh, since the the 9th century. A couple of weird exceptions to that, but broadly speaking, Scotland had been an independent kingdom since the 9th century. Previous to the 9th century, the area known as Scotland today um, had been a bunch of smaller petty kingdoms. There were the Picts, the Gales, the Scots, even some Britons as well. But in the mid-19th century, most of these various petty kingdoms, they were conquered, they were unified, and this unified kingdom became known as the Kingdom of Scotland. By the time of Alexander III, Scotland more or less comprised of the same area it does today. A couple of exceptions, you know, a few islands here and there, such as Orkney and Shetlands, a couple of other areas as well. But uh, it, it broadly resembled modern Scotland, uh, you know, with for the most part anyway. But um, as I say, it's with the death of Alexander that the trouble starts, right? His death ended up sparking a political crisis that directly led to war with England. Uh, which makes the story of his death, the way he died, all the more absurd when you think of the you know pretty pretty full on consequences that came of it. Right, one night on the eighteenth of March in twelve eighty six, Alexander he's in Edinburgh, he's hanging out with his advisors, having a great time, you know, bloody partying, having a council, having a bit of a celebration, whatever else. Um, problem is, next morning, right, next day, it's his wife's birthday, and Alexander, right, he wants to get back over to Kinghorn over in Fife, where his wife is on the other side of the of the Firth of Forth. Uh, he wants to get there before the, mo- the morning comes. You know, brilliant. See the, see the missus on her birthday. Um, now, it may uh, surprise you to learn, right, that the weather was absolutely atrocious this night. Very unusual. I know, very uncharacteristic for Scotland to have bad weather. 
So when he stands up and he says, listen here, boys, had a great time uh, hanging out with all of you and you know, all the advisors there. Uh, had a great time, but I'm going to go home. got to get home to the missus. Her birthday tomorrow. Don't want to, uh, you know, don't want to disappoint. i got to be there for the big day. All of his advisors, they say, oh, no, Alex, mate, listen, your majesty, don't go. Wait until the sun's come up at least, mate. Too dark, too dangerous. Don't do it. You know, don't get your horse and ride through the, the, the horrific weather outside. It's going to be the death here. And uh, Alexander, though, he's, he's, he's a bloody king, mate. He does what he wants. He's not listening to anyone. So he gets up. He says, listen, I'll do whatever I want. You know, get together, get the guides, get the bloody entourage because we're heading back over to Kinghorn. Don't even worry about it. So he hops on his horse and off they go to make the trip over to Kinghorn in the middle of the night in this stinking weather. And sure enough, Alexander, he, he gets lost. He gets separated from his, his companions, gets separated from his guides uh, on the journey. Bloody lost the king they have. Oh, no, bloody disaster. And then the next morning when they go out to search for him, he is found lying at the bottom of a steep, a steep embankment with a broken neck. Bugger bum. He is as dead as a doornail. But why was his death such a problem? Because it set off a succession crisis due to a lack of heirs. His, uh, his son, who confusingly had also been named Alexander, he had died two years previously in 1284. And while the queen was pregnant when Alexander was, uh, was found, you know, dead in a ditch with a, sta- a snap neck, the result of this pregnancy, tragically, was a stillborn child. And this meant that the last remaining heir of Alexander, uh, the king, was his granddaughter. His daughter had married the king of Norway, and together that had a kid, Margaret, known as the Maid of Norway. But she is only three years old when her grandpa dies, and doesn't make the journey over to Scotland to be crowned as, as queen for another four years when she's seven, uh, which leaves Scotland without a monarch for, you know, quite a, quite a while. Now, six blokes... They become the guardians of Scotland. William Wallace isn't one of them at this point. Uh, essentially, in the meantime, these blokes are regents, more or less. They look after the kingdom while it never king or queen. And they organise a marriage between Margaret, the maid of Norway, and the son of the English king, Edward. That's both the king and his son, who were called Edward. I mean, that was a bit of a time saver, although we've lost the time I saved with that by explaining you that it was a time saver. But anyway, very, very confusingly here, the current king is Edward I, Edward Longshanks, as he's known, whereas his son uh, will eventually become Edward II, unsurprisingly. Anyway, Margaret Margaret is engaged to Prince Edward, Ed, who would obviously go on to become Edward II, um, which will make her queen of both England and Scotland. So it's a pretty good deal for her. Um, although provisions are made to keep Scotland autonomous, even in personal union, union with, Kingland, uh, with, with England like this, she would be the queen of Scotland independently in her own right, as well as the queen of England. Uh, obviously, the Scots, both then and now, valuing their uh, independence very highly. And with all that sorted, uh, it takes years to sort this out, by the way, but with all this sorted, it's finally time to bring Margaret home to Scotland and whack the crown on her head. So in 1290, Margaret makes the trip over to Scotland, just seven years old she is, but she falls very sick on the journey. And after landing in Orkney, which at this point still belonged to Norway, Margaret's Margaret's condition didn't improve, and a week later, she died. Probably food poisoning, right? Now, this tragic event, it it, uh, triggered a succession crisis known as the Great Cause in Scotland. There was no clear heir to the throne, and no fewer than 13 blokes tossed their hats into the ring, hoping to retrieve from the ring then a crown. Now, they all had claims of various strengths, all with various, uh, you know, very exciting names, such as legitimate cognatic primogeniture or tanistry with proximity and degree of kinship. So all sorts of very fancy stuff going on there. But I'll tell you what, these claims were not put forth with a spirit of cooperation and friendliness either. Instead, it actually looks certain that Scotland was headed towards towards civil war as all of these different blokes, uh, you know, size up their opponents and, and figure out whether they're going to uh, go from sabre-rattling to actually, you know, cleaving their opponents in twain. And in the end, in order to avoid the war, the guardians of Scotland, they come together, they go, listen, we've got to do something about this. And so they invited someone to come and oversee the selection process, basically invited someone to come in and pick a king for them, right? Now, maybe you think, oh, they pick a neutral party, someone who is, uh, you know, uninvolved, doesn't necessarily have an, a vested interest in the affair. Nope, they do not do that. They pick Edward Longshanks, the English king. And this proved to be a very bad move indeed. Because Edward, he jumped at the chance to meddle in Scottish politics. He saw it as an opportunity to assert English authority over Scotland. 
And this was then, and of course still is today, one of England's favourite national pastimes, oppressing the Scots, just oppressing the bejesus out of Scotland. Um, Various English kings before Edward had attempted to uh, establish political dominance over Scotland to varying degrees of success. For example, previously, a century before this, Scotland had actually spent 15 years as a vassal state of England. But broadly, as I said before, Scotland had maintained its independence from England, although Alexander III had been pretty deferential to England and Edward before he died. Anyway, Edward, he sniffs an opportunity to gain more control, more influence in Scotland, and so he accepts the offer to pick its next king on the condition that he is recognised as the Lord Paramount of Scotland above whichever new king he selects. Now, the Guardians, they after going back and forth, there's all sorts of negotiation, that sort of thing. But again, in order to avoid civil war, the Guardians, they reluctantly agree to this. Remember, England is a very powerful neighbour to have at this point, and Scotland can't necessarily stand up, and they want to keep the English king on side, so they, they're more or less forced to agree here. And so Edward, once he's got this uh, assurance from Scotland, He convenes a great big council and he decides that a bloke named John Balliol had the strongest claim and should be crowned king. And he duly was in 1292, although let me tell you this, it only got worse from there for the Scots. Because John Balliol was so deep in the pockets of Edward Longshanks that Scotland lost any sense of independence. Of course, it makes sense. Longshanks is going to pick someone not only who favours him, but also who, after picking him, is going to be indebted to him as well. And John Balliol and a bit of a spineless weasel here. And so Edwards, right, Edward starts treating Scotland like a vassal state of England, basically. And John just kind of let him do it. Um, Edward embarrassed and humiliated John at every turn. He undermined his authority and um, even made him appear at an English court as a, as a commoner, right? Not a king. So other Scottish nobles, they're not happy about this. They're none too bloody pleased, I can tell you this. They don't like their spineless new king. And so three years later in 1295, they actually, they turf him out in his ass. They they undermine him by appointing a new group of guardians, the Council of Twelve, these blokes called. Still, still not William Wallace. He is coming into the story, I promise you. Um, and this Council of Twelve, they basically ignore John Balliol as the king and they try to reassert Scottish autonomy. And they do this in a very clever way as well. They take a, a path that uh, is bound to upset the king, but also bound to, you know, probably be pretty fruitful and successful here. Because we all know, right, we all know that while the English love to oppress the, oppress the Scottish and the Welsh and the Irish and all the rest of it, of course, there's something they love even more. They love fighting the French. And so knowing that it would piss Edward off, the Guardians, right, they approached France and they sought out a treaty of mutual assistance, creating an alliance that would become known famously as the Old Alliance. It strongly connected these two nations, France and Scotland, and it remained in place for over 250 years. Even if there wasn't a war with England going on at the time, these two nations had each other's backs. And... um, it also had a very uh, profound influence on the situation with Mary, Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I, uh, which you can hear all about in episode 19. Anyway, this alliance, right, it absolutely enrages Ed- Edward Longshanks. He's, he's, he's spitting chips, he is. Uh, you know, at, at the time, of course, he's at war with France, obviously, the natural state of any self-respecting English monarch. Um, and so in retaliation for the signing of the old alliance, Edward Longshanks, he gave up on political manipulation. He gave up on diplomatic wrangling and just invaded instead. He invaded Scotland. He's living his best life as an English king. Check this out. I mean, he's warring with both Scotland and France at the same time. He is bloody loving it. But this invasion in 1296, it triggered the first war of Scottish independence. And initially, it went swimmingly for the English. Edward won a series of early victories and then forced John Balliol to abdicate. He ripped the arms of Scotland uh, from John's surcoat to humiliate him one last time. It uh, ended up with uh, John getting the nickname uh, Tomb Tabard, which means empty coat. So he was humiliated beyond belief. Bit of a poison chalice there you drank from John Oldson by bloody jumping into bed with an English king. Anyway, he's off in exile in France after this. Um, and uh, let me tell you this. Scotland is not going to take this lying down. They're not going to take this invasion of their homeland lying down. They're not going to take the deposition of their king, even if he was a bit of a bloody spineless weasel. They're not going to take this on the chin, are they? No. So Scotland mobilises what forces they could and and attempted an impassioned defence of their their country there. 
And this is where, at long last, after 15 minutes of stage setting, this is where William Wallace finally enters the story properly. Now, I said before we don't know too much about Wallace personally, um, but it is thought that he must have had some measure of previous military experience because, uh, as the you know, as the War of Independence, uh, the first the first Scottish War of Independence, they don't know it, but of course this is the first of many. Uh, the first War of uh, Scottish Independence kicks off. Uh, he's appointed as one of the Scottish military commanders as they begin to f- take the fight for the English. Now, he may have fought as a mercenary, perhaps even fought under the banner of Edward as a mercenary uh, for Edward Longshanks uh, while Edward was engaged in another proud English pastime, oppressing the Welsh. Um, but for whatever whatever the reason, right, whatever his experience may have been, Wallace is one of the commanders of the Scottish forces as they begin to take back the fight to the English. Now, by all accounts, he's a big, massive strapping bloke. He's great, big, strong fella, big, big, huge muscles, you know, enormous and tall. And he is, again, sort of, don't think about the way that you might, what you might see if you type in his name into, into Google. You know, he's not a hairy, long-haired bloke in a kilt. No, he's got his... He's got his sword, he's got his armor, he's got all, he looks like a, you know, a medieval warrior, much more than a, a you know, hairy tribesman from the, from the far north of Scotland. That's definitely not, uh, not what was going on there. Um, now, Wallace, he gets stuck straight in. He gets stuck straight in, right? He, uh, he had a hand in the assassination of the, of the Sheriff of Lanark, and he also cut his teeth with raids on English strongholds in the Borderlands. Now, this bloke obviously had a fair bit of, uh, of, of charm and personal magnetism because the, the common folk of Scotland who, you know, look, at this point, nationalism isn't a thing in the way that it is today. People are often proud to be from the country they're from and, you know, for, there are various reasons for that, and I'm not getting into the rights and wrongs of nationalism here, but I, I want to point out that at this point, you know, in the late 13th century, nationalism was not was not the same sort of force that it is today. You fought for king rather than king and country, and certainly not never just, you know, not just for country. So, you know, Wallace going around and mobilising uh, ordinary common folk to fight in defence of a free Scotland was quite a feat. And then again, he was pretty brutal with some of it. Like he did more or less just conscript a lot of people and, you know, executed some who refused to serve or wanted to run away. So, you know, he did have his, maybe it was a little bit of a, a little bit of carrot, a little bit of stick there. But the fact of the matter is, Wallace did have uh, certainly a gift for winning over people's hearts and minds, and he certainly mobilised a lot more people than you would normally in a conflict like this, rather than just, you know, a, a levies or a standing army from vassal lords or whatever else. Uh, you know, the, the, the Scottish nobles, the Scottish aristocracy was able, with the help of William Wallace, to, to mobilise a lot more people than uh, they would have, would have been able to otherwise without his, uh, you know, his charisma there. So, Wallace also was able to not, you know, in addition to to raising forces of his own and 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 rallying people that may not have otherwise thrown in their lot with the with the Scottish military. There, he also joined forces with some other Scottish leaders, uh, most notably Andrew Murray, who had been fighting the English uh, tooth and nail as well. And and listen, honestly, by this stage, right, things are actually going pretty well for the Scots. By the time we get to twelve ninety seven, it has to be said, like, in they'd actually managed to turn the tide of the war against England, against the initial uh, invasion, the the initial onslaught that had sort of seen, you know, John Balliol deposed and whatever else. Uh, the Scots are beginning to get their own back. And in a surprising uh, turn of events for this podcast, it only got better from there. Because outside of the upra- uprisings, the raids and whatever else is going on there, the first major Scottish victory, right, that really, really stamped their authority on the early stage of this first war it took place on the 11th of September in 1297, and it was called the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Now, the battle took place, as you might have guessed, in Stirling, and more specifically, at a bridge there in Stirling. So, historians, look, they might have stuffed up the Hundred Years' War and the Battle of Bunker Hill, but they nailed it with naming the Battle of, <laughs> the battle of Stirling Bridge. Anyway, Wallace and Murray write, they're in charge of a force of around five or 6,000 troops. They're amassed in the hills north of Stirling, uh, and Stirling is a town of critical strategic import, uh, importance here. It's uh, it's often uh, you know the, the Stirling Castle, the the myth and the legend surrounding Stirling, Ca- Stirling Castle says that whoever holds the castle holds Scotland, and uh, broadly speaking, that's true because uh, the castle and and the town are in, of, of such a a critical importance to anyone hoping to uh, you know not only hold the central belt but the country more broadly speaking because it uh, commanded such a an enormous amount of power over the surrounding region. Anyway. 
Um, uh, five or six thousand troops in charge uh, with Wallace and Moray in charge. And the English, right, was almost twice the size of this. The English army that was uh, deployed to deal with uh, Wallace and Moray were almost twice the size of the Scottish army, around 9,000 men. And after arriving at the River Forth, right, the English army, they see the Scots on the other side, and the only way across the river is a small bridge. The small bridge that crosses across the River Forth there. And the English commander, the Earl of Surrey, he realises he's, he's in a bit of trouble. He's in a bit of trouble because there was no other way to cross the river. The nearest ford isn't for, is miles away. And the Scots were laying in wait, more or less, on the other side. Now, Surrey was. this meant that Surrey wasn't going to be able to get you know, his army across the river without a very difficult fight. But unfortunately, well, unfortunately for England, fortunately for Scotland, Surrey also seems to have been a bit of an idiot, uh, to put it mildly, because after spending a few days trying to figure out a different plan of attack, he just went, ah, bugger it, it'll be, uh, should be, should be right, cross the bridge we go, boys, let's, let's get to it, right? So <laughs> the English army, right, they thought about marching miles up the river and crossing the ford, then coming back down, but that would have involved crossing through marshland and all that sort of stuff. And if they'd gone further, you know, further to the east, the, the river widened out, was even harder to cross there. So eventually he goes, ah, bugger it, we'll just, we'll just cross the bridge and it'll be all right. And, uh, well, I don't want to spoil the ending, but it certainly was not all right. I can tell you that. It certainly was not all right for the English. They begin to cross the bridge. Thousands of mounted knights and even more infantry here. But the bridge was only wide enough for two horsemen to ride next to each other side by side. So it was slow going, slow, slow going for the English there. But the Scots, they were very patient and they didn't attack for quite some time, right? Instead, they held back. They waited for the opportune moment until the English forces were split on either side of the river. and then. They descended from the hills and they formed up to fight the divided English army. And obviously, this was the right time to do it. When the when the army is split across the river, obviously, if not enough people had come across, they'd just retreat and you know get back across the other side of the river. Whereas if too many people had, uh, had gotten across, it would be very difficult to fight a pitched battle against a, an overwhelming force there. So the Scots nailed it in terms of timing, and, and a lot of that was to do with the tactics of Murray. Murray really was the uh, the tactical genius that oversaw a lot of what happened at the Battle of Stirling. Wallace was there, obviously, important as well, but, you know, very famous commander. But uh, Murray was principally the one in charge of the manoeuvres, the tactics, the strategy, whatever else. So you've got to give him credit. To, uh, uh, you know, obviously, that's where the credit is due. Anyway, so they wait for the opportune moment. They form up and they get ready to fight the divided English army, as I say. And now, if you go back to episode 88, you'll uh, remember when I was talking about the longbow, I mentioned how at this point in, in, in history, right, the cavalry charge was more or less the strongest and mo- most dominant battlefield tactic. It was more or less the, the, the powerhouse manoeuvre that any any military commander in this period of history could, could hope to uh, take advantage of, right? And in episode 88, we talked about how the longbow changed that because, um, you know, I mean, well, I mean, it was five decades later that the that the English longbows were were butchering French knights on the uh, on, on the the battlefield of Cressy. But uh, yeah, fifty years before the Battle of Cressy, the Scots were doing their bit to hasten the end of the cavalry charge as the superior battlefield manoeuvre. Obviously, it was the rise of the longbow that really undid um, the cavalry charge. But the Scottish Shiltron formations, right, close knit defensive groups with spears bristling out at all sides, was just game over for for a cavalry charge. I mean, they couldn't touch them. The cavalry couldn't come near infantry drawn up like this with spears pointing out. Uh, it, it made them almost impervious to the cavalry charge. So, Because think of it, if horses approach the shieldtrons at speed, right, the horses would actually impale themselves on the spears and then the knights would be hacked to pieces as they fell off their dying horses. And this, I mean, that's not a, that's not a hypothetical either. That's actually what happened <laughs> surrey lacked the foresight or the tactical thinking to do anything other than stick to you know the 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 chivalric rules of combat and so he sent his cavalry basically to their doom he 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 ordered the charge on the shieldtrons murray uh, arranged the shieldtrons in quite offensive formations here and the scottish spearmen were able to fend off the cavalry charges and then counterattack due to their position quite offensively rather than just defending themselves they then pushed forward um in order to uh, counterattack against the English infantry that was behind the cavalry that had just been butchered. And after the, the, the cavalry failed to break the Scottish lines, the infantry, they're, they're confused, they're poorly organised, there's this haphazard retreat, there's just a rout going on, basically. But remember, the rest of the English army is, st- is still in the process of trying to cross the bridge. They're still trying to get across the river. So the army's in total disarray. Wallace and Murray, they ordered a charge on the bridge itself to seize control of it, cutting off the English retreat. And as these, you know, 
routed English soldiers are going against the flow of traffic, trying to get back over the bridge, it is so easy for the for the the the, the Scots to swoop in and cut off this retreat. And I wasn't able to find a, a consensus on this. Some some of the sources uh, differed in their reporting of it. But apparently, at least, it's at least potentially, there were so many English people trying to cross back over the bridge that it actually collapsed under the weight of all the knights and the soldiers on top of it. And so many, many English people may have died in the river. Certainly some did. Some of them tried to swim in their armour back across the river onto the other side of safety and, and died in the attempt. But... Uh, Taking advantage broadly of the panic that settled in amongst the English, the Scots, they moved in, they cut down all the English that couldn't get back across the river in time. Some, as I say, they dropped their weapons, they fled, they attempted to swim across the river, tried to run for the hills, whatever it was, but for most of them, it was no good. Out of the 9,000 English troops at the Battle of Stirling Bridge, over 5,000 of them were killed, including... Edward's treasurer in Scotland, Hugh de Cressingham. Now, I mention this bloke in particular because even after such a stunning victory for Wallace and Moray and the Scots more broadly, an absolute, absolute total victory here. They've they've, they've completely butchered the English. They've killed five thousand. They've killed more than half of the uh, of the English uh, the English invading army there. A, a huge, huge victory. But the reason that I mentioned Hugh de Cressingham is because uh, when his body was found amongst the English dead. Uh, William Wallace put it to uh, use in a rather, <clears throat> in a pretty full-on way, to say the least. Wallace took Cressingham's corpse, he flayed it, right, flayed the skin off of it, and used a long strip of it from head to heel, apparently. He he used it uh, as a shoulder strap for his sword, like bloody Geralt of Rivia strapping his sword over his back with human skin taken from one of his fallen foes. It was pretty gross. Anyway... The Battle of Stirling Bridge, it was very important for more reasons than one. Obviously, you know, quite aside from the political ramifications, obviously putting putting Scotland right back into the thick of things with fighting the English, it also was a very unusual battle for the time as well because Wallace and Moray, they didn't adhere to the usual chivalric rules of warfare. And what do I mean by that? Well, chivalric warfare was all about strength of arms. It was all about knightly combat, a level playing field, all everything, everything being fair, may the best man win, all that sort of thing, right? Whereas Wallace and Moray, they had used timing and terrain, striking the enemy when uh, when the enemy was weakened with a tactical advantage thanks to the lay of the land. And as stupid as this sounds, that just wasn't really done. Like, commanders were not supposed to be opportunistic like this. They would kind of just usually line up their forces and bash them into one another and see who had the best of it. So Wallace and Moray, they definitely upset the apple cart in that regard and won, another, won a huge victory for Scotland. And as a result of this this big victory here, they were now named the Joint Guardians of Scotland. Although Murray, uh, tragically, he'd actually been wounded during the Battle at Stirling Bridge, he wouldn't live out the year as a result of his injuries. Which meant that Wallace, as the as the lone guardian of Scotland by the end of 1297, right, he went from strength to strength. The English, they'd been routed, they'd been pushed back, the wind was in the sails of Scotland, and Wallace used the momentum to great effect. As the, as the English went back to lick their wounds, Wallace, he led his army into England itself. He, he took them quite away into the south, further, further even than the lands the English had captured in the initial invasion, right? And there, they raided the pants off the countryside around Newcastle, around Carlisle. They brought back plunder and booty. And towards the end of, 19, uh, of, of 1297, Due to his efforts in fighting the English and, and you know, his success as the guardian of Scotland, William Wallace was knighted. So remember, when you're talking about Wallace, make sure you give him his proper title, Sir William Wallace, the guardian of Scotland. Now, of course, Edward Longshanks, he is not going to take this lying down, is he? No. After hearing of the defeat at Stirling Bridge, he calls a truce with the French. Don't forget, he was fighting the French as well. And he returned to England personally to deal with the situation in Scotland. He moved his government up to York to be closer to the Scottish threat. He raised a huge army and he got ready for another invasion. Now, this time he wasn't messing about. He readied tens of thousands of soldiers, as many as 25,000 soldiers he readied and paid for. Uh, and this time he prepared for an overwhelming show of force. The English uh, army had advanced north, and this time it was their turn to raid and pillage, while Wallace and his army, they avoided open conflict, being so very seriously outnumbered. Now, Wallace did have a plan. Uh, While keeping his distance from the English army, he still stayed relatively close uh, to to Longshanks. Uh, He shadowed the movements of the English army, because he was hoping, right, that eventually, deep into Scottish territory, the English would run out of food and supplies, and that, when they retreated, would be when Wallace would strike. Now, once again, 
some opportunistic, some underhanded strategies that were quite unusual for this period of medieval history. And Wallace's plan had seemed to be a good one. Even lacking the tactical genius of Murray, Wallace seemed to be in a decent position here. The English, they hadn't brought adequate provisions for a long campaign. They were cut off from coastal supply shipments by a spate of bad weather that kept ships a long way away from the coast. And so uh, the English army soon began to run out of food. Now, there were even riots within the English camps. A lot of Welsh, uh, Welsh fighters that had been conscripted into the army here, they, uh, they rose up against the English, but they were violently put down by Edward's knights. But morale, nonetheless, was very low. Supplies were lower. And so things weren't looking good for the English, despite their superiority in numbers. Hoping that they would soon retreat, Wallace, he readied his army to attack uh, getting ready for you know the, the eventual withdrawal of, uh, of the English forces, hoping to catch them at, at, at a disadvantage. But unfortunately for Scotland, this never happened. Because in July 1298, Edward received reports of the specific location of Wallace and the Scottish army. Now remember, Wallace had been darting around trying to avoid the English eye. But finally, Edward figured out, Edward was told after some reconnaissance, some scouting, some spying, he actually got a firm fixture on uh, on Wallace's position. Now, this was a big problem. This was a big problem for Scotland as Edward hurried to press the attack because he advanced uh, on where the on the on the Scottish army's position near Falkirk, right? Uh, to find a six thousand strong Scottish army there in wait, but he, Edward, had brought fifteen. 15,000 men bore down on Falkirk, including 2,500 cavalry to the Scottish 500, right? So from the outset, things look very grim, very, very grim for Wallace and the Scots because Wallace had been hoping to fight the battle on his terms. He'd been wanting to avoid a pitched battle for this very reason because he knew he was outnumbered and, uh, and, you know, completely uh, completely outmuscled here. Uh, going up against an army three times the size of your own is the last thing you wanted to do here, but uh, that's what ended up happening, unfortunately for uh, for the Scots and unfortunately for William Wallace. Uh, they drew up once again in, into their Shiltron uh, formations, but this time, of course, in a very defensive, very, very defensive position compared to last time when they were on the attack. Uh, but they did that, of course, to protect themselves from the cavalry charges, uh, and uh, nonetheless, the English advanced. However, there was no bridge to bottleneck the English this time, and the English were able to flank the Scottish as a result, driving off their archers and cavalry. The Shiltrons did uh, hold firm. England and uh, Edward had learnt the lessons and uh, of the Battle of Stirling Bridge and did not just send his cavalry to their death by uh, you know impaling themselves on the Shiltrons. So all wasn't all was not lost just yet, right? Uh, but what Edward did instead was he drew up right the great many archers that he brought, a large proportion of them Welsh, and they began to blast the Shiltrons to bits with longbow fire. We've talked about the dominance of the longbow at this point in history in the in the high Middle Ages, in the 13th to 14th centuries, the, uh, the absolute dominance of the longbow on the battlefield, and here was really where it began to show its strength. The Shiltron may have trumped the cavalry charge, but the longbow trumped the Shiltron very, very easily indeed. It, the, the Shiltron is a slow-moving, very defensive formation that was not able to defend itself against the mighty Longbow. And before long, the Scottish Shiltrons were able to break. And so the Longbow not only busting cavalry, but also busting the thing that busted cavalry was obviously a, a, a huge threat, a huge advancement in military uh, in military technology. And its dominance on this battlefield really, really can't be overstated. The fighting... It was fierce, and the Scots, they gave out as good as they got it, but unfortunately, uh, you know, as, as the battle wore on, of course, they were just so overwhelmingly outnumbered by the English that uh, uh, they tragically had to, uh, they had to retreat. The Scottish, they broke, and once the English infantry advanced to fully rout the Scots uh, as they retreated, the battle was over, and it was lost by Scotland. While the casualties on both sides were more or less even, they're around 2,000 people apiece, this represented a much greater loss for Scotland, of course, as it was a larger proportion of their smaller army. You know, it's very easy to think about that. Losing 2,000 when you've only got an army of 6,000 is, is much greater loss when you've got an army of you know, 15 or 20,000. Losing 2,000 is, is, is much a much easier loss to bear. Now, Wallace did escape from this defeat. He escaped with his life, but uh, his career as a commander, was effectively effectively over. The plain fact of the matter is that he stuffed up the Battle of Falkirk beyond belief. I talked about Murray a fair bit before, the bloke who died of his wounds he'd received at Stirling Bridge, and he really was the brains behind the operation in Stirling, uh, at Stirling Bridge. Wallace, he was a gifted leader of people, and he won the hearts and minds of many, and had a huge following as a result. 
But it was Murray and not Wallace who won Stirling Bridge with his tactics. Murray had used Shiltrons offensively in Stirling, whereas Wallace had basically anchored them in place in Falkirk and they hadn't been anywhere near as effective on defence, not to mention that they didn't actually go up against the cavalry because these Welsh longbowmen came in. And Wallace's hit-and-run raiding tactics had worked extremely well uh, after the English had been sent packing after Stirling. Now the English had rallied and were a proper fighting force. Wallace was in way over his head. He was a great leader of people by all accounts, charisma coming out his ass, but he just wasn't much of a military commander, unfortunately, it seems. And, and, and Falkirk was a battle that maybe couldn't have been won under anyone's guidance and supervision, but Wallace definitely bottled it, unfortunately. And after the loss at Falkirk, his reputation as a military leader, it never recovered. Although he was still enormously popular in the hearts and the minds of the common Scot, uh, and while he survived the Battle of Falkirk, his position as the Guardian of Scotland, it did not. And he resigned in September 1298. Instead, Robert the Bruce became uh, Guardian of Scotland, along with John Common the Red. And Robert the Bruce would later go on to become King of Scotland, although that is another story. As for Wallace, after his resignation, not 100% sure what he did, although we can make a couple of pretty good guesses. Uh, it's, it's very likely that he moved away from military work and into the world of diplomacy. Uh, representing Scotland and its cause to various other European leaders in search for a bit of help. Uh, most notably and principally, of course, he went to King Philip IV of France uh, to request aid, calling on the, uh, well, uh, we call it the old alliance. It was a pretty new alliance at this stage, but uh, he he, he pro- quite, it's very likely he went to France and petitioned the King Philip for aid. And he may have even made it as far as Rome to ask the Pope to intervene in the war between England and Scotland. A lot of these guesses are based on, a few surviving letters that mention Wallace. King Philip, for instance, wrote to the Pope supporting Wallace's request for help. There's also a report from an English spy that confirmed Wallace was in France. And so there's a good chance that, you know, th- this is exactly what he was up to between 1299 and, and, and 1304, trying to drum up support for the Scottish cause. Um, but unfortunately, his efforts, uh, with the Pope at least, largely came to nothing. The Pope condemned England for the invasion and told Edward to lay off Scotland, but Edward... Uh, just ignored him and instead unfortunately for scotland the war with england it only went from bad to worse england and edward they uh, they sniffed out a chance to conquer scotland entirely and so longshanks he sent another invasion force into scotland in 1300 and then again in 1301 and scotland it began to fall many of the scottish lords and nobles they submitted to edward and his overwhelmingly powerful armies they even lost the support of the french with king philip having too much on his plate back at home so the french withdrew their support of the scottish as well and so by the time that wallace returned to scotland in 1304 you know and he was involved in in skirmishing and raids but it was just too little too late and, and too much harm had been done and scotland had by this stage, more or less completely fallen into English hands. Edward Longshanks, he became known after this conquest as the Hammer of the Scots. His relentless determination to bring Scotland under his heel. And as I say, by 1304, he'd more or less less done this. Scotland had no true king. John Balliol was in exile in France after having been deposed. He was unable to do anything. And even powerful leaders like Robert the Bruce had had given in to Edward's campaigning and, and had submitted. Wallace, however, he refused. He refused to submit. And so... Edward became singularly determined to capture William Wallace, with more or less all the other lords and leaders of Scotland having submitted to English rule by by means of necessity. Oh, they'd have their bloody heads chopped off. Wallace, along with a couple of others, people like Sir Simon Fraser and Sir Sir John de Soulis, they held out. Now, de Soulis, he escaped. He headed off to France, and uh, Edward finally managed to bring Sir Fraser to heel in 1305, charging him, along with so many other Scots, with the task of hunting down William Wallace. Now, Wallace, he evaded capture. Uh, maybe, maybe some of his mates were phoning it in. Maybe some of the people who Wallace had charged, you know, trying to humiliate other Scottish knights by trying to hunt down one of their former comrades. Uh, maybe they kind of phoned it in a little bit. We don't know. But um, uh, Wallace did make a bit of a fool of Edward and made Edward more determined to make an example out of out of Wallace. Uh, the lone thorn in the king's side, still holding anger out against the English rule. He really did piss off Edward Longshanks there. So, Edward. He used threats and warnings to force even more of Wallace's former companions and allies to hunt for him and turn him over to the English. But, you know, quite aside, this served two purposes. Quite aside from Edward wanting to capture Wallace and making an example of him, it also became a way for him to, you know, bend his new Scottish subjects to his will. But uh, unfortunately, of course, Wallace, he couldn't hide forever. And after being on the run for a very long time, he was finally discovered and captured on the 3rd of August in 1305, after one of his servants gave him up to a local sheriff, John de Monteith. De Monteith then captured Wallace just outside of Glasgow, and he handed him over 
to Edward Longshanks. And for doing this, for this, for this brazen act of, uh, of treachery against a Scottish hero, John de Monteith became known as False Monteith. And it makes you wonder if all the other Scots, you know, as I said before, all the other Scots that have been charged with hunting Wallace down were really just phoning it on. Just, oh, yeah, Edward, mate, no worries. No sign of him. Honestly, haven't seen him. Been looking whoa, nonstop, but uh, he's just not here, eh? It, it does make you wonder whether he did have the secret support of many Scots who were at least outwardly proclaiming their loyalty to, uh, to Edward Longshanks. Anyway, as I say, in mid-1305, Wallace, he was finally captured by the English and he was swiftly transported to London with his legs tied underneath his horse for the journey. And in London... A show trial was quickly arranged in Westminster Hall, where he was charged with treason. And he was mocked and he was ridiculed throughout the English. They put a garland of oak leaves on his head as a crown for the King of the Outlaws, as they called him. And of course, the trial was a sham and he had no chance of making it out alive. But that didn't stop Wallace from holding his head up high and refusing to submit to the English. In answering the treason charges laid against him, he denied them fully. William Wallace, he stood up and he said that it wasn't even possible for him to commit treason in the first place. And this is what he said. He said, I could not be a traitor to Edward, for I never was his subject. But of course, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to die. And it wasn't just to be a, uh, a quick and clean death either. No, the traitor's death was long, it was bloody, and it was horribly gruesome. On the 23rd of August, 1305, William Wallace was taken... To the Tower of London, where he was stripped naked and tied behind a horse, and then dragged to Smithfield, the place of execution. And there, he was strung up to be hanged, but that wasn't to be what killed him, of course. No, no, no. He was to be hanged and drawn and quartered. This meant hanging him by the neck, but not until dead. He was only partially strangled, then cut down before he actually died. And then he was drawn. Firstly, he was emasculated, which is... Pretty bloody brutal. And then he was disemboweled before having his guts burnt in front of him while still alive. Now, you might wonder how this is even possible. How can you be disemboweled and live long enough to see your intestines burnt in front of you? Well, a skilled executioner at this time in history would be able to make sure this is exactly what happened. They would tear your guts out in a way that wouldn't kill you straight away. Obviously, it'd kill you eventually, of course, but Probably not too long thereafter, although it very rarely came to that because of what came next. After being disemboweled and having his guts set on fire in front of his very eyes, William Wallace was then finally beheaded, bringing to an end the agony and the torment for this poor bloke. But it didn't bring to an end the indignity. That didn't stop there, of course, because next came being quartered. Wallace's torso was hacked into four pieces with the limbs still attached, and these four pieces were put on display separately. It's important to note. In Stirling, in Perth, the Scottish Perth, not the Australian one, uh, Berwick and Newcastle as a warning to any other supposed traitors. And finally, his head was dipped in tar so as to preserve it and it was impaled on a spike on London Bridge. Not a nice way to go, but at the very least, William Wallace, he died as he lived in open defiance of the English, a red-blooded Scotsman to the very last. And that, exalted listener, is the true story of Sir William Wallace, the Guardian of Scotland. And while he never lived to see a free Scotland, and despite the near total capitulation of the Scots in the early 1300s, the nation would rally and it would rise up against the English and ultimately defeat them. Robert the Bruce turned against Edward and was crowned as the new King of Scotland in 1306, and after losing his brothers to English executioners, he took the fight to Edward Longshanks. After Edward's death in 1307, uh, Robert the Bruce, he continued to campaign to secure Scotland's freedom, which culminated in the critical Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, which was a key victory for Scotland that turned the tide of the war. Scotland declared its independence from England in 1320, but it took a further eight years for it to be formalised properly with the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton, which finally ended the First War of Scottish Independence in favour of Scotland. And of course, Scotland wouldn't remain independent forever. For more on that, you can have a listen to episode 50. But the cause that William Wallace died for ended up, in the end, being successful. But that's it. That's all she wrote. Well, actually, it's not really, is it? Because I'm not going to end this episode. I'm not going to do it. Like, 
first of all, for all the people who like tune out as soon as the 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 you know housekeeping music starts playing, they are missing out on the best part because I'm not going to end this episode without addressing the elephant in the room. I'm not going to not talk about the horrifically inaccurate retelling of William Wallace's story perpetrated by a certain Mel Gibson. You may have seen the film Braveheart, but let me tell you this. Almost nothing in that film, as you now know, almost nothing in that film actually reflects the reality of Wallace's life. I very much enjoyed reading the... uh, you know, very various historians' criticisms of this film, I have to say, because, you know, usually historians are very dry and very boring until something like Braveheart comes along and, whoo boy, do they then let fly. Check this out, right? So, so firstly, right, firstly, we'll start with the, with the name of the film, Braveheart. The traditional Braveheart of Scottish history wasn't William Wallace. It was always Robert the Bruce. The poems and songs that were written about Braveheart before this, that referred to Robert the Bruce, the bloke who, you know, ultimately won the war for Scotland. Uh, so they've stuffed that up from the start. They've stuffed that one up from the start. And, of course, in the film, he's portrayed as little more than a peasant who rallied, you know, other peasants, those of his class, to fight. Whereas, obviously, in reality, he was part of the Scottish gentry. He was more or less a minor noble, a, a knight. You know, he was definitely wasn't a mud-streaked commoner. And he definitely didn't sleep with Isabella of France. Like, in in the film, he has this affair with the, with the you know, future Queen of England. He definitely, that, that definitely didn't happen. He de- like, you know, in the film, he's portrayed as having an affair with the wife of Longshank's son, Edward II. Absolutely not. Now, why, why do I sound so sure about this? Why, how can I be so sure that this definitely didn't happen, you may ask? Well, first of all, when Wallace was cutting about fighting the English, Isabella was in France. She wasn't in Scotland. And secondly, she was three years old. So that is certainly, absolutely a fabrication that did not happen. Also in the film, Wallace talks about Scotland having been under English control for generations, which obviously, as you know, wasn't true. He was born in a free Scotland and it was Edward Longshanks's invasion that uh, first put Scotland really under the heel of England in, in, in a major way here. But it gets worse. When he, fought, when, when he fights the Battle of Stirling Ridge, you may have noticed something was missing from the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And I'm not just talking about Andrew Murray. As Irish historian Sean Duffy put it, the Battle of Stirling Bridge could have done with a bridge. They didn't put the bridge part into the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And it was, you know, a pretty important part of the battle, I think it's fair to say. There's also a line about um, a bagpiper playing outlawed tunes on outlawed pipes. Now, this is a persistent urban legend that the English banned the bagpipes in Scotland. They never did this. Uh, but even if, but even if they had, even if Edward Longshanks had come in, if Edward Longshanks had, had kicked in Scotland's door and said, no more bagpipes, right? The Scots there would have been like, what the bloody hell are bagpipes? Bagpipes had not been introduced to Scotland at the time of William Wallace, so they definitely weren't banned there. No one had heard of them in Scotland. Um, as for Edward, I mean, we can talk about more about Edward Longshanks. I mean, sure, look, fair enough. The film needed a villain, right? But Edward, he wasn't the heartless cynic that he seemed to be in the film. He was a, a civic reformer. He was a, a very strong-willed and forward king. And, um, you know, if he wasn't at war with you, he tended to be pretty fair and even-handed, maybe perhaps even generous, right? That is, of course, and you know... As long as you're not Scottish, Welsh, or notably Jewish, none of whom he treated with all that much respect, it had to be said. But as for all the, the nonsense about, uh, you know, just prima nocte, the, the, the idea that the king has a right to sleep with a, a new vassal's wife, this was never a thing. Like, it wasn't, it, this is just a total fabrication. It, it is not a real thing in history at all. Kings didn't go around rooting their vassals' new wives. It just did not happen, mate. But it's the most famous images from the film, right? Gibson, as a wild Highlander in belted plaid and a kilt with blue woad all over his face, brandishing a claymore. All of this totally and amazingly inaccurate. So, firstly, Wallace was a lowlander. He wasn't a Highlander. So he wouldn't have been wearing Highland dress like a kilt and, a, and, and whatever else. Like that's, that's, you know, that is... It's called Highland Dress, and he was a lowlander, so he wouldn't have been wearing that, right? He was not a wild Highlander at all. But this is just the start, because Wode, right, the blue war paint, it hadn't been in common use. It's, it's smeared all over these, these, these Scottish warriors in the film, and it hadn't been in common use 
for about a thousand years. No worries at all. But I talked about Highland dress just a moment ago, right? Kilts, belted plaid, all that sort of stuff. The kilt didn't emerge as a garment until the 16th century. And what you think of a kilt as today, like the modern look of a kilt, that didn't, that was, I mean, that wasn't, it wasn't a thing until the 18th century. So the kilts that were being worn, right, in the, uh, in the film are about 500 years ahead of their time in conjunction with the woad that has come along around a thousand years too late, right? And the belted plaid, the, the strips of tartan that were worn in the film, they just aren't worn like that. They were just never, never worn in that way. Not even close, right? So one of my favourite quotes about this film comes to us from historian Sharon Crosser, who characterised Braveheart. When you think about, you know, just the costuming, when you think about the way that this was all put together and, 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 and the, the ridiculous anachronisms of this film, right? Sharon Crosser characterised it by saying that it was, it was similar... To a film about colonial America showing the colonial men wearing 20th century business suits, but with the jackets worn back to front. It's just, it, it, it beggars belief that this is how the filmmakers decided to portray this story. Gibson came out in defense of, of the glaring and jarring historical inaccuracies that you may have picked up annoy me quite a fair bit by saying it was the most cinematically compelling thing to do. Well, stick it up your bum, Mel Gibson, old mate, because you've you've just gone and, and, and generated a huge amount of myth and legend and, and, and completely, completely false nonsense that now people associate with Scotland and with, with William Wallace. It is, it's just the, it's the worst thing, right? Oh, but perhaps, perhaps, the very best thing, right, the very best thing to come from Braveheart actually existing, having been made, right, is the quote that came to us from author John O'Farrell, who put forward the idea that the film couldn't possibly be more historically inaccurate than it already is, even if they had included a plasticine dog in the film and changed its name to William Wallace and Gromit. (laughs) Anyway, the next time you watch Braveheart, and I don't recommend you do, just take it with a very, very big grain of salt because a lot of it is absolute nonsense. Anyway, that is that for this episode of Half House History. Halfhousehistory.net, you know all the nonsense. You've heard it all a thousand times. Well, not a hundred and nine times. You've all heard it all. Um, Spotify, iTunes, get in touch if you want. Patreon store. That's it. You've heard it all. You know what's up. Please get in touch with any ideas for topics you've got. And I'll be back next week with a, I think I'll do a history of something, history of, uh, you know, like we've done in the, with the potato coffee or whatever, I, clocks. So I'll, I'll do something like that. I'm, 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 I'm feeling that sort of thing for next week. So I look forward to that if you're a fan of those episodes. Anyway, that is that for this week of Half House History. Thanks for tuning in. And of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit here. This one comes to us from Reddit historian Diniato, who asks, <clears throat> I recently watched the William Wallace historical documentary trilogy, Braveheart, The Patriot, and We Were Soldiers. How was he able to live so long? Is he perhaps still among us? 